Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Here on the show, we attempt to find universal ideas and stories all around us, whether old or new, in every medium and in any genre. We hope to participate in a great conversation alongside our favorite authors and artists across the ages about the stuff of life, man's frailty and glory, his muck and his marvel, his faith and his doubt. In this season, the Center for Lit crew goes to the movies. We're looking at what happens when our favorite books are adapted for the big screen, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Over the course of 10 episodes, we'll be discussing the similarities and differences between the two mediums and what distinguishes a successful adaptation from a real stinker. So grab some popcorn and enjoy the show. Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Bibliophiles. I got a confession to make about this one. I sort of created this season so we could do this one. This was kind of the episode I wanted to do. Today we are going to discuss the works of the great Kenneth Branagh. Now, if you listen to our last episode, you will know that I have been saying his name wrong as long as I've known who he was. And (laughs) my family knew it. And in public, they let me do it for a long time before correcting me. I actually didn't know it until very recently either. It's Branna. It's Kevin. It's Kenneth. Not Kevin. Kenneth. <laughs> Branna. Branna. I was going to say, Ian, at least you haven't been calling him Kevin Branagh. You know? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've heard Branagh before. And then there's also some people will just add like some. <laughs> you know? Just to be cool. Just to be cool. I don't know. There was a G. A little Let's phlegm. aspirate that puppy. So, oh, but before we do this, before we do this, an icebreaker. And I'm anticipating this might be some fireworks. Henry V, mm-hmm. Kenneth Branagh, or Tom Hiddleston, go. Ooh, that's hard. Is it? A, do we go in order? Yeah, we go in order, starting with Adam. It's it's Kenneth Branagh because the St. Crispin's Day speech has glorious anthemic music underneath it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Instead of being dead silent. That is actually a very film-oriented comment. Yeah, it is. And I, so I think that's pretty good. Emily, you're next. This is really hard. I really loved Tom Hiddleston's interpretation of Henry V's character. And he had the advantage of doing the whole cycle of doing Henry IV right. one and two before he did Henry V. So he had an extended period of time to develop the character. However, last I taught Henry V as a summer course last year and rewatched all of them, including the Laurence Olivier version. And I had forgotten. I think the last time I had seen Branna's Henry V, I was young. And now I am older. And now, now I know how attractive Yo. Kenneth Branagh was in his heyday. <laughs> Something I did not know. I lost it. It comes down uh, to sex valid. appeal. Hang on a second. I, that Ian, is said, Ian said to me, that was a very film-oriented comment you made. The only thing we can say now is, that was a very, a very hormonal <laughs> comment you made. Hormonal comment. comment. <laughs> no, it was good. I, I think that they're both quite good. Branagh's is definitely more theatric, and the Tom Hiddleston one is more stage play. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Megan? 
Well, I don't have as educated an answer. I didn't even know there was a Laurence Olivier version of Henry V, so I need to go do some more homework. But I agree with Emily that it does come down to who's the more attractive, <laughs> giving the Crispin's Day address. It all, it all comes down to Crispin's Day. <laughs> and I do think it comes down to Crispin's Day and it comes down to Kenneth Branagh. I think the way that that scene is produced is absolutely captivating and you find yourself yeah, feeling like an English woman. You know what I mean? Even though I'm not. <laughs> and you wish feeling you were like there. like an English woman. Yeah. That's yeah. great. So you do actually... I don't know. That was going to be great. I was going to remember the line. Something about cheap. Anyways, mom, your turn. <laughs> you count, count your, your life cheap or something. cheap. Yeah, she holds her womanhood cheap. <laughs> there you go. I don't know. I, I loved them both. I think I probably would have to go with Brenna's because it's the one that I saw first. Yeah. And I think his, not just the music behind his St. Crispin's Day speech, but his actual delivery of it was completely spellbinding. And I was ready to go fight. I yeah. wanted to be among the few, right? I'm telling you, you want to be an it English amazing. woman. Yeah, right. it was amazing. I, I love I loved the Hiddleston version as well. So I don't want to, I don't want to throw any stones that direction. Does that mean that we are unanimous on Branna at this point? It might just be that like Branna's kind of having a renaissance right now. And so we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Okay. We're going to get to that. <laughs> I, I have yet to offer my vote. Okay. And it's Hiddleston for me. <gasps> Really? really? Okay, how come? I respect I, you for that. I love Kenneth Branagh. I love him. But <laughs> one of the says, things that so I, hot right now. One of the things that I appreciate <laughs> Emily's into me right this minute. One of the things I appreciate about Tom Hiddleston's performance, it, not only Emily's right, he gets to do the whole cycle, but also the Christmas Day speech in particular is how human he makes it. Which is the great thing about Shakespeare. It's at once a portrait of this national hero. And a portrait of a normal man with feet of clay. And I think Hiddleston emphasizes the second of those two things in the way that he delivers that speech. Mm -hmm. And it was a lot of relatable because it's also of that. intimate. Right, uh, intimate. Yeah, it's a good word. In the Hollow Crown, they choose to, instead of having him deliver it to the troops at large, he only delivers it to his immediate leaders. Yeah, to his close friends. Interesting yeah. decision. Yeah, it was really, the pathos of it was super heightened. Not in the you know, rah, rah, England and St. George kind of way, but in the, in the intimate, the five of us are going to die here together. And that's got to be okay for these reasons. Cause I'm in charge. And that was, that was well done on Hiddleston's part. Well, And can we agree that they both beat the snot out of Timothy Chalamet's performance in oh. the King of that particular <laughs> speech? The, granted the movie was great in other ways, but that speech was gutted. It was. Version. They rewrote it. Wait. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? They should give him a chance to do the real thing. I bet he would slay it. He would oh, I think he would. I don't think it was the fault of the actor, good. but it was not only silent like Tom Hiddleston's, but also impersonal, you know? Mm -hmm. Cold. Yeah. Oh, that was everything I wanted in an icebreaker. Thank you all for participating in that. So the topic on the table today, as I've said, is Sir. He was knighted. Sir Kenneth Branagh. Was he really? I didn't know that. Didn't he's, he he's been knighted. He has been nominated for a total of 16 Academy Awards. Wow. He has won and two he just of won them. One. Oh, yep. he won two? He's won so two. So this was he not won his for, first. He won for Henry V back in 1989. And then he just won for Best Original Screenplay this year for Belfast, or last year, I guess, for Belfast. So nominated the, for how on many? On the film side, uh, what did I say? 16. 16. Yeah. 16. Wow. Seven of those nominations came for Belfast. Wow. Yeah, he only he only netted one of those. 
So anyway, a, a long and decorated career, and that's just the film side. He obviously started his career on the stage and was very successful there before making the jump to the silver screen. And he's a uh, beloved favorite of all of ours. And the reason we're including him today is because the whole topic of the season, just to remind you all again, has been the intersection between film as a medium and literature and how a director does a difficult thing when he picks up a beloved story and sees fit to adapt it for the screen. We've seen some good ways of doing that, some mediocre ways of doing that, some great ways of responding to the originals. And um, in taking up Kenneth Branagh's work, I think you'll all agree we're talking to one of the great masters of literary adaptation. Adaptation, yeah. So I think each of you have a particular favorite in mind, and it doesn't have to be your absolute favorite, but you came in thinking of one, I'm assuming, that was sort of the, the birth of the idea for you. And in no particular order, tell me about Kenneth Branagh as, a, as an adapter and a director. Who wants to start? I do. Okay, Dad, go for it. I want to say that the, the most compelling thing about a literary adaptation to film, for me as a viewer is when a director, producer, star manages to combine a straight-ahead, what I would call a straight-ahead reading, mm -hmm. maybe even a traditional reading, with elements of his own personality, uniqueness, in terms of an artistic sense. And I think that combination is hard to do. And in... I think Kenneth Branagh is a master of it. And the example that I have in mind is his 1996 Hamlet, which it, uh, in a million ways combines those two things that I think make for, make for a great ad adaptation. And I, I think I like the first thing, the straight ahead reading, because it, it embodies what I think is the most important thing about reading, which is humility before the text, right? The, mm -hmm. the reader or the director are doing the same thing if they're doing literature, right? And that is, asking the author, what did you have in mind to say thematically about the world? And I want to say it too, because I'm, I'm adapting your work. And so uh, when it comes to Hamlet, I'm going out on a limb here. I don't know how often that's actually been done in not, not just in film adaptations, but in stagings of Hamlet. It's been around for 500 years and the straight ahead readings have been passe for 100 of those. And so <laughs> right, people are least. doing, you know, a million things. Hamlet is the pinnacle of English language literature. And so all of the schools of interpretive thought have a go at Hamlet. And so you, you get, by the time I was, you know, came of age and realized what Hamlet was, there were as many readings of Hamlet as there were schools of thought in the American graduate school. Yeah. And it was de rigueur to, you know, pick one, the weirder, the better. And have Shakespeare essentially say something deconstructionist or something feminist or something Freudian or something. Right. And, you know, to, to Shakespeare's credit, the, the play is, is and all his art is so profound and so intelligent and so self-aware that all those readings are doable. But Branagh comes along and uh, it's almost like what Wynton Marsalis does with music when he comes along in the 90s and he says – Back to the twenties. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. You know, let, exactly. Let's glory in tradition. <laughs> and he gives us in Hamlet a straight ahead reading about, he makes the play about what I think the play is about, which is the tortured introspective indecision of a guy who thinks too hard. 
and is too philosophical for his own good and too observant of human nature and the foibles thereof to actually take up a dagger and do his business. And that's the, that's what the, that's what the movie's about mm-hmm. too. And there's no hint in Brandon's treatment. And I, if he were here, I would fall down on my knees and worship, but also I would want to know. <laughs> I would want to know if I'm right about this. Yeah. Hey, Kenneth, you were giving us a traditional straight ahead reading, weren't you? And you left all the the schools of thought from graduate school out, didn't you? And I would not be a bit surprised to hear him say yes. Oh, no. To what you're saying, he did such a great job of choosing the easiest way to to stage each scene Mm -hmm. instead of making it too complicated. And the result is it makes sense in a way that a lot of times Hamlet just doesn't. I'm thinking in particular. It's like a translation almost. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking in particular of the scene where he comes to Ophelia reading her book and he like there's a shift in his character either he's he's excited to see her or interested in her in her and then all of a sudden he turns on her and starts regaling her with you know get thee to a nunnery etc and it's right. like it's like a bipolar moment if you're reading the text and Branna says yeah it's because it's because he saw Polonius mm. and he, he he knows what's happening mm. very simple reading but it makes all the difference there's not a psychological explanation. There's a blocking explanation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I love that. I love how straightforward that is. So that's the first thing I would say that is mm-hmm. it's a very straightforward reading. On the other hand, it is presented in what I firmly believe is Branna's own individual, unique, let's make this a grand smash of a yeah. spectacle. A spectacle. Style. It's a 1990s superhero movie. Yeah, baby. Right? I mean, think about the the duel at the end with Laertes. They're wearing sexy Superman costumes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they're wearing these these tight pants and these blousy shirts. And then they they strip off the blousy shirts and then there's these sexy suspenders underneath, right? I mean, I'm sure they all pumped iron for three hours before they shot the scene. And it's it's flamboyant and it's it's staged like like Brent, it's like theater. all of it's theater like all of Branagh's other works. There's always a there's a set and there's a focal point visually in the yeah. set that sort of stands there mm-hmm. as if you were in a theater looking at I a stage. Everything is overblown. The costumes are fantastical and dramatic, and um, it it feels like all of Kenneth Branagh's movies at the same time that it's a faithful straight ahead rendition of the play. And so I love that combination. And that's for, for me what makes a great literary adaptation. And that's why I love, I love Hamlet. Mm, that is great. I have to confess, I've only seen the first half of his Hamlet adaptation. And you slept through that. Well, I'm going to accuse Megan here on the air because no, Megan came to my house on a weeknight, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yes, it was. And then you said, <laughs> I want to watch a movie after we had dinner and we you know, had to split a bottle of wine. I love how strident said, I'm going to sound in this story. And I said, I said, okay, what do you want to watch? And she says, I want to watch, I want to watch Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. And I said, isn't that like four hours long? And you said, yes. And I said, I don't think I'm going to be able to stay up through that. And you said, I don't care. And then you sat down next to me. You sat down next to me and you poked me awake for like an hour and a half until finally I said, go home. (laughs) I just sent you away. All right, the portions of that story were true. Okay. It's so long, Branagh's Hamlet, that there's an intermission, which I love. Mm-hmm. I love it. It was like it was like watching a movie from the sixties where they had a big long intermission. It was wonderful. And then also when he came back, it was like it was like remember we talked about Baz Luhrmann's The Great Gatsby in a yeah. previous episode. It's it's over the top like that and long and indulgent, 
but but at the same time not it's not in the he's, he's not trying to combine hip hop with Shakespeare. Right. It's he's not revisionist. It, yeah, exactly. It's just big and brash and bold and colorful and theatrical and wonderful. Well, and he doesn't add any any text that isn't there either, right? Yeah. I mean, he he doesn't no, that's have true. every single word. So, presumably that's about how long it took to do Hamlet. Well, there is a there are a couple of of interpolations, right? He he um goes ahead and says Hamlet and Ophelia were lovers. Right. Mm-hmm. So we get a, you know, we get a five second flashback Montage. of the two of them in bed. You know, so <laughs> right. there's... This is turning into an X-rated episode. No, I mean, with all my business. <laughs> it's true though. No, you're right. Anyway, it's wonderful. I I think that's the combination of those two things makes a great adaptation. Man, I couldn't agree more. So, okay. Who's going to go? Let, let's have Megan go next. Yeah. Well, I just was thinking about what you just said, that he didn't add anything to the text. It was a straight ahead reading. And that's one of the the powerful things about Kenneth Branagh. I think that's true, particularly with his works of Shakespeare. The way that he treats the bard is ultimately respectful and straight ahead, arguably because there is no need to add to Shakespeare. He's got a dialogue that is pristine that you're working with as a movie maker already. And even Baz Luhrmann didn't find any need to change the script of Romeo and Juliet, even though he was going to do some crazy stuff with it, right? I'm thinking of Kenneth Branagh's interpretation of Cinderella. And I thought that his additions to that story, additions even of, of dialogue, made that fairy tale come to life for our generation in some pretty magical ways. So I don't think he's always just taking a story at its traditional face value. I think that sometimes he adds elements to it that really are important. I'm thinking particularly of the tagline of Cinderella, the thing that her her pristine character is always saying to herself to, to get her through hard moments. She says, have courage and be kind. And it sounds trite. It sounds fairy tale-ish at the beginning, but it deepens over the course of the story because of a couple individual characters. I'm thinking particularly of the prince who falls in love with Cinderella, his relationship with his father is shown to us in a way that Disney never did because of Branagh's interpretation. We get to see him loving his father, wanting to be like his father, learning how to be a ruler from him. And this line that Cinderella gives him, have courage and be kind, comes to signify, have courage to submit to an authority greater than yourself. Trust him to lead you into good ruling. And there's this beautiful scene where the prince acknowledges, I will, I will follow you, my father, into whatever you think I should do, to a point. And his father is dying. And the prince crawls up in bed with him and snuggles him. And it's this grown man prince mm-hmm. snuggling his dying father, which, I mean, it sounds weird to say it out loud, but the way that Branagh interprets that scene is he, it's theatrical. It's a gigantic King, I mean, it's just like the bed. Yeah, it's like 16 feet tall. Oh, yeah. Those of you who've seen the Disney cartoon version, remember the hilarious scene where the king's jumping on the bed, like with with Cinderella's slipper, like he's celebrating the thought of grandchildren or whatever? The bed is that big, but it's a real live, I mean, it's a live action movie. So it's just preposterously over the top theatrical. But in the center of this bed, here's this old king who's dying and Richard Madden, the hunky adult, just crying over his dad and snuggling him. I mean, it's precious yeah it i'm also a grown man and i wept through that scene yeah oh my gosh so beautiful but i'm also thinking of that the interpretation of the stepmother in that movie 
played to great effect by Kate Blanchett. She's just supposed to be a villain. And in a fairy tale, the dark is very dark and the light is very light. And Kate Blanchett does a great job of being truly heartless and villainous. But Branna doesn't let her be a one-dimensional character. And by the end of that story, you see her see herself in the effects of her cruelty on Cinderella. And there's a scene where Cinderella turns to her and says, I forgive you. And Kate Blanchett's character crumbles and sits down on the stairs behind the bars of the, of the sweeping staircase and watches Cinderella go out into a happy life as she sits in her bitterness. And which has become a prison to her. Yeah, which has become a prison to her, even though she tried to imprison Cinderella likewise. So again, that, that statement that he, that he put in the thematic interpretation, have courage and be kind, Cinderella had courage to submit to this authority that was broken. And in the end, she comes out triumphant. So his, his additions to that story made it what it was in my, in my estimation. That is very interesting. Yeah, I really agree with you. It seems like there's a there's a connection between these two things, though, because what I don't hear in either of those accounts, the account of yeah. Hamlet or the account of Cinderella, is Kenneth Branagh trotting out some sort of pet idea and trying to foist it on the story. He no. seems to recede into the background when he's doing an adaptation and allow the work to speak for itself, unless it needs some help saying the thing that it was setting out to say in the first place. Right. Well, when he sits and I down think Cinderella, Cinderella he asks himself, what's beautiful about this? Let's accentuate yeah. it however we can. Why do we love the story of Cinderella, even though she could be really annoying to us, one-dimensionally perfect <laughs> right, in a yeah. scenario where no one would have a good attitude? And he right. basically says, I think that this is why we love her. This is what that story is telling our children and, in fact, us when we read it. This is what's beautiful about a fairy tale, you know? I appreciated that that same movie because I anticipated going – when I heard that someone was doing a, a new take on Cinderella, I thought, oh, no. Here comes a <laughs> right, postmodern right. redux of Cinderella, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, because that seems like what we've been getting recently is reinter- reinterpretations of old fairy tales right. with a twist that's like, um, like into the woods, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, in fact, I'm mom, I think there's actually in. been a Cinderella adaptation since then. Have since, there? Since oh, Branna's yeah. that does that. You know, I, um, that's what I, that's what I was afraid of. And then I saw this and it was lush and lovely and everything wonderful about my childhood experience with Cinderella mm. shown through in the film. And I couldn't have asked for a better treatment of the story. And I think it's for all the reasons you all have mentioned already, the things that you said, Adam, about his, his attitude towards tradition being really straight ahead. He's, he's conservative in that he sees that the old stories are worth conserving. Hey, yeah, yeah, I right? agree with that. They're, they're worth preserving. There's something there in the spirit of the story, um, in the, the ethics of the story, and in the the ability of fairy tale to to tease our minds into another kingdom. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I love that. That's yeah, a great way I, to put that. He preserved all of that magic in his own telling of the story. And you're right, Megan, the additions... You know, I didn't, I didn't realize when I was watching it that they were additions because they Mm -hmm. were so true to my own understanding of the story itself. Right. He put words to a theme that was unspoken beforehand. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Although I do think that in the original fairy tale, there was a bit more spite at the end of the story. (laughs) Didn't we talk about that last time? (laughs) We did. We did. I mean, the stepsister's getting put in a barrel 
with knives thrust into it and then yes. rolled down a hill into a lake. So his is a that kinder, is gentler, it is. Uh, a kinder, gentler reading. The ju- the well, the just it's, but it, it isn't without justice though, because I think that's one of the things that a, that a fairy tale uh, that all old fairy tales do is emphasize justice, right? Yeah. And, and so the bleaker, the crime, the bleaker, the justice at the end, the good guys win in a big way and then meet out punishment, on all the bad guys that happens in this story too. But I think he asks himself, what kind of punishment would a person like Cinderella actually dole out? Right. The punishment of, of forgiving someone who hasn't asked for it. That's beautiful. Right? I mean, it's it's hot coals. It's still justice. I mean, Kate Blanchett, like Megan said, is wrecked by yeah. the final scene of that movie. And there's no way to watch her performance and the staging without saying she's gotten exactly what's coming to her. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's not a, you know, a barrel full of spikes. It's forgiveness, which is incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I agree that fairy tales, I mean, I understand why they do that. And I know that it's necessary to distinguish good and evil so firmly. But I love that there's a sense in which Branna seems to be saying, yeah, but these kids are going to become adults. Yeah. And and as an adult, like you are, I'm sorry, but you are the wicked stepsister. You yeah. deserve to be put in a barrel full of spikes. And so now what? Rolled down a hill. <laughs> right. <laughs> now what? Yeah. What do you hope is extended to you instead as a grown up? Do you really yeah. want justice? Yeah. That's, yeah. Really that's beautiful. Great. So mom, what did you come into the episode thinking about with regards to good old Kenneth? Sir Kenneth. Well, that's a question. I, I, I'm scattered. I'm scattered to the four winds. Maybe it's the time of day that we're, <laughs> that we're taking these. Because I felt a little be. scattered yesterday too. But- you know, I love his treatments of Shakespeare. I really do mm-hmm. appreciate his straight ahead readings of Shakespeare and very much enjoyed Much Ado About Nothing. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. With co star Emma Thompson. Co star um, and I think his wife. wife. Yeah, she was, he was married to her at the time, right? Their, their sparring, their verbal sparring was just, it was beautiful. Almost Great as good chemistry. as ours. Almost just about. Insp- <laughs> Can I say that it was inspiring? I aspire <laughs> to that kind of verbal parrying with you. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I really enjoyed that. But as I look, most recently, he's done those Agatha Christie movies. Oh, yeah. And so that's what I've seen most recently in order to be able to talk maybe somewhat intelligently. <laughs> sure. Because I, I did not rewatch Much Ado About Nothing last night. So yeah, uh, both his Murder on the Orient Express and then the most recent uh, Death on the Nile, I would have to notice the same thing that dad did. He kind of covered the waterfront when he was talking at Brana in particular. I loved the spectacle that he added to it. Mm. Um, the, the temple, the Karnak Temple that oh, is in yeah. the background in Death on the Nile and the the luxurious ship that they're on, spectacular. In the in the Murder on the Orient Express, same thing with the lavish set and the dizzying heights of that train on the trestle and the fight that goes on there, just just heightening the tension of the story. Yeah. But at the same time, never letting it get too gritty. He has a way of dealing with darkness that doesn't, he doesn't soft pedal the darkness. He doesn't soft pedal the evil. It's present. It's fully present. And he's exploring the sinful nature of man in these pieces. But he manages somehow to retain that cottage mystery flavor that mm. was so peculiar to Agatha Christie. Yeah, I agree. Um, he never, it never gets as gritty as like a, a, a 21st century crime thriller, you know? And there's, there's like blood and gore. There's like, right. there's, there are realistic elements to it. 
but he still manages to retain the theatricality mm-hmm. of it, which I, I very much appreciate. I love that. The, the fact that he's able to retain the spirit of Christie's stories, I, I think I've watched some recent, Ag- I'm, I'm kind of an Agatha Christie nut. I love Agatha Christie. If there's ever <laughs> something Agatha Christie that comes out, I always go see it because she's got a, a little special place in my heart. But recently there was one called the ABC Murders. Did you guys see that? Oh yeah. That, that was, was really on, disturbing. Uh, John Malkovich. Yeah. It was, was it on Netflix? I don't know. I can't remember where we saw it. Maybe uh, Amazon Prime, mm-hmm. but yeah, it was a John Malkovich one and it was so gritty and so updated that I couldn't watch it. I, I too frankly, I pieced out and said, I, this is too violent for me. <laughs> and I love Agatha Christie stuff, but that element, the cottage mystery element that I don't know, there's, there's like whimsy and business and things like that, that create a theatrical kind of set. This happens in a set yeah, and it, it distances the viewer from the grittiness of the actual crime so that they can look at it and be truly horrified at the sinful nature of, of man that actually gives way to things like mm. that yeah. without having violent nightmares. When it's yeah, over. I get that. It's sunny. There's something sunny about it. And walking walking that line. Well, I think I think um, Emily came in prepared to talk about some similar ideas to that, if I'm not mistaken. Did Emily, I steal your you... thunder? I'm sorry. Well, I think it's interesting that you say that it's that it's a lighter treatment of Christie because I know a lot of people have complained about his treatments of Agatha Christie because they think he takes it too seriously. That, that he explores the character of Poirot. He, right, he adds. This is an instance in which Brenna adds to the story. We get backstory. Backstory in Death on the life, Nile. Yeah. A lot of people were dissatisfied with the ways that he took that. And he adds some thematic elements that people are like, well, this was just supposed to be a fun mystery. Oh, I loved the additions. Okay, but go stop ahead. everything. Let's just, why don't we just dismantle that gently? Well, go, Emily. <laughs> yeah, go, Emily. <laughs> what, I, what I love about it is it's true. Christy doesn't develop her themes very strongly. It, it is both Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile. They're, they are just cottage mysteries that are, are fun. But he picks up on some things that are in the background, some of the bigger questions in the stories. And just like he did with Cinderella, he develops them Mm -hmm. and brings them to the surface in really beautiful ways. And I love that I know that he's planning to do a third one and he hasn't released the title of it. He says it's going to not be one of his more one of not one of the more well-known Christie's. But at least in this first initial set, it feels a little bit like a diptych, you know, like those paintings that uh, mm. that oh, are um, meant to. Thank you. This one I looked up. Hey, I'm like, I'm like a word, diptychs and triptychs. <laughs> Let's go. Ekphrastic <laughs> poetry on a diptych, yeah. baby. <laughs> so a diptych is a painting, and I don't mean to be pretentious. I did have to look that word up, but are you it's, in graduate uh, school? Right now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's a two-paneled painting, right? Yes, it's a two-paneled painting, and the paintings are different, but and they're intentionally contrasting, but they speak to each other in an important way. And I think that that is what he's doing with these two films. Murder on the Orient Express is cold. It's snow, right? It takes place in the wintertime, and, and on the train, they get stuck in, in a blizzard. And it's about 
cold justice being served, yeah. right? Yep. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it unfeeling, unrelenting justice. Everyone was in on the murder and Poirot has to make the decision about whether he is going to apply cold justice to the situation because they're all guilty and he should turn them in. And ultimately he, he chooses not to, but he's confronted with a, a very severe question about the nature of justice. Well, and the nature of he himself. Yes. Right. Right. At the end of that right. film. Yeah. So that in the next one, Death on the Nile, he turns it completely on its head, right? It's in the desert. It's hot. It's steamy. It's about romance, passion, lust, right? It's um, a crime of passion. And again, he's confronted with the question of who he is. And he has to examine his own background. And and Brenna adds, right, his own romantic history and his own, the own question of his mask, his mustache, right? And he's invited to reveal his face at the end of the story and i think it's a really beautiful pairing i think those things are there in mm-hmm. christie even if they aren't as explicit and what he has done to elaborate on them are, is magnificent oh wow i love That's that really i hadn't thought I, of it me either okay so i have to i have Great. to ask you to explain what you mean that it's a crime of passion because it's premeditated murder right well for, a sacred for the, lust yeah it is a premeditated murder but it's but it's, it's motivated by by Amor, you know, and they kill each other in the end because they refuse to oh, yeah. not go out together, right? Yeah, yep. I think yep. it's. I think in that in that regard, you can still call because it's greed that motivates the initial murder, but but it's it's just as untrammeled a passion as lust is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I I um I was thinking that I love the reason one of the reasons I love these movies is similar to what I said earlier that they're um, thematically traditional and and mm-hmm. even in the case of these two you could say that his orient express is about justice and i was going to say that his death on the nile is about love mm-hmm. but i think your um, take on it is better that death on the nile is about passion mm-hmm. and rather than love and the question that poirot faces not only in the in the plot but in his, in himself is what do we do about the question of justice and what do we do about the question of passion and I think that's a cool way to um, to guess that Branagh might have put them together. That little well, diptych. He idea. fails because of passion in that film too. Yeah, because his say. friend, his friend. Oh well, yeah, his, his friend name died. His name is escaping me. But yeah, basically, in a moment of passion, Poirot thinks that he he allowed friendship to cloud his vision, and so he makes his friend sit down in front of him, and that ultimately leads to his friend getting sniped. So, <laughs> well, You're and even right. more than that, he has made he has made life altering course setting decisions based on on frustrated passion. Right. He's lost his lover and that has made him who he is. And in, in we saw in Orient Express, the mask begin to crack a little bit as he's faced with who exactly do I think I am here? Mm-hmm. And then it, it crumbles even more in this until he finally shaves his mustache off. Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought that was so, such a good conclusion. That was really yeah. beautiful. great. It was great. Oh, my word. I love that. So if they're doing, I mean, this is totally a sidetrack, but if he's doing a third one, will Poirot have his mustache? I think so. Yeah. He, I was going to say, he I don't think teased, I can look at him without his mustache. Maybe you guys can solve the riddle. He has teased that it is, it is a Poirot story. It, it, it takes place in Venice and it's one of the lesser known Christie's. Poirot in Venice. Place in Venice. Hmm. 
have to look it up. He I don't know if went to Venice. I he might reset it in Venice. He might have reset it. I want him to do Roger Ackroyd. Me too, so oh, bad. Same. <laughs> but I mean, you guys, so he might good. be continuing on a theme if if he's done the cold and he's done fire and he's done I mean, water next. Like, this might be a thing that he's doing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, we're talking about him as a theatrical Emily, genius, first and foremost. You should write your right? master's thesis on Kenneth Branagh. Well, like, if that will allow me to meet him, I would 100% do that <laughs> Kenneth, if you're listening please we'd love to meet you please don't be offended that we called you kevin at the beginning <laughs> thank you for apologizing slip of the tongue i want to sort of synthesize all of this because i haven't i haven't g- um, given my own two cents yet but i couldn't say anything better than any of the rest of you said but it sounds like what you're trying to say is that on the assumption that a good director when he goes to adapt a novel is a good reader of the sort that we mean when we say good readers, right? He's a good listener first and foremost. He has gotten to the heart of the thematic material in the novel, and he attempts to put it on the screen. Kenneth Brown is the best of them. Although I heard that he botched Frankenstein. You're the one who told me that. Well, so I was going to bring that up. Okay. There is an earlier, uh, early in his career, let me, let me get the date for you. It's uh, 1994. Something. Yeah, we were still, you were still little. So I, I was, was two, born that I year. I was exactly two years old. Um, <laughs> he released Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And Big year for me. The Sorry. only word for what the critics did to that film is excoriate. We should probably watch it. We should probably watch they it. They did that to. They do that to his work a lot. They, they do, do. It's true. But it, it was apparently terrible. So it, maybe his track record isn't perfect. It's almost a badge of honor when the critics rip your work apart. It means it's good most of the time. Sometimes. <laughs> well, it does. based on what we read Hot of the reviews, it sounds like he might have misread Frankenstein. Yeah, it sounds like he may have <laughs> missed the boat on that one. But generally speaking, the dude is a great reader. And I, I think it makes him a good director. Well, I also think that's the highest compliment that Center for Lit can pay Kenneth Branagh is to say, you are a good reader. We really Great like your readings <laughs> of things, you know? Yeah, we like yeah. your readings As if you need our judgment no, of course. on that subject. Teeny <laughs> tiny little Center for Lit. <laughs> you. We like you. Well, I want to write, though. offer a plug, though it is not a literary adaptation. We're talking about movies here. The movie that he just won Best Screenplay for, that oh was nominated goodness. for it's seven so Oscars, beautiful. Belfast, was wow. gorgeous. And not if I'm an not mistaken, though. no, I said that. Um, no, if I'm not mistaken, it's also a reading of his own life. Mm. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's autobiographical. And so, man, Somewhat, I think. He can, read, he can read authors and he can read his own, his own history and give us a compelling portrait of that, too. It's awfully good. Yeah, it was beautiful. Ah, oh, Kenneth. Oh, Kenneth. We love you. Is anybody going to mention Swing Kids? It wasn't actually an adaptation, I don't think. Not an adaptation. We're not going to mention know. Swing Kids. It broke our hearts. I never want to think about it again. <laughs> wow. All right. Have yeah. honestly. Well, see, have you, you all seen that? Swing Kids? Uh huh. Long time ago. Did it not break your heart into a million pieces? It was beautiful. Sorry, Emily. Emily, please continue. <laughs> well, I just wanted to. We like universally love Branagh, and but this is unique. You, I don't know if you guys realize how unique our perspective on him is, even among, even among Christians, even among. Not everyone loves him, and I wondered if maybe we should address that fact. Well, uh, Emily, I'd like to hear if, since you shame, apparently have shame heard on this, all you other ones. <laughs> on what? On what basis? What's the criticism? I mean, I'm mm-hmm. sure there is one. Well, Ian, you might have to help me out on this, but I think it has—I think it has something to do with the fact that, well, he's not reading the Christie's straight ahead. I know that one for sure. That that bugs people. That he's over dramatic. Mm-hmm. He's too emotional. 
and yeah i don't know i think that it's too it's simplistic maybe yeah simplistic combination of simplistic and overly emotional like he's taking himself too seriously but then his work is not serious enough which is a weird combination of criticisms but that's the one that i hear mostly simplistic when i was coming along was a thin veil a thinly veiled way to say not not so doesn't comport well with the graduate school schools of thought with right. the, it's not obtuse on purpose it's not right. obtuse on purpose right yeah. it's not pretentious i want to push back on the christie thing though just for a second because I've, i'm a little more familiar with that particular criticism and with the criticism being that he's not reading agatha christie straight ahead and therefore he's reading stuff into it and it should have been a fun cottage mystery. We've talked about Agatha Christie on this show before, but she's she, in my mind, is part and parcel of a lot of other English authors of her era in writing to a world that is just that is trying to put itself back together after a world war. Mm-hmm. Right. A world in which philosophically the death of God is on the table and where Christian culture, which is what Europe had been up until that point, Christian culture was it looked like falling to pieces around everybody's ears. And I think we've correctly identified that the cottage mystery elements of it, the cottage part of the mystery elements of it are to drive everybody back into a really important conversation without getting their hackles up. Everybody come on into this familiar setting where all is right with the world, where Christianity is still a thing, but morality, generally speaking, still reigns in this little world. And now let's look at the evil in the human heart. I don't know that you can take Agatha Christie too seriously. I don't I, think so I either. think that's a good point. And the, the fact that her genre is detective story mm-hmm. um, maybe misleads people, maybe gets distracts people from what you just said, because that's a genre thing. There are not, not a lot of long philosophical, what's the word I'm looking for, soliloquies right. in a detective story. However, if you think about what you just said, Ian, as one of the things that Christie might have been trying to do, there is some soliloquizing. Yeah. There Every is. once in a while, yeah, awesome. the protagonist of a Christie story in a couple of sentences is shown to be having the kind of deep conflict and conversation that Hamlet does in his to be or not to be speech. It's just in a different genre. Yeah. So I think I agree with you. I don't think you can take Christie too well, serious. And I'll take you one step further than that when it comes to Brana in particular, or Brana in particular, excuse me. <laughs> Um, which he's is never going to Which is that back. he has, he has, yeah, he's so mad about his name. Um, <laughs> just get it right. <laughs> the Poirot that he gives us is being convicted over the course of two films of being a supercilious nitpicky yeah. jerk. People yeah. don't want to hear that. People don't want to hear that, right? But I think that's so, it's so self-aware of Kenneth Branagh to, to adopt that position. He basically says, look. Y'all think I'm taking myself too seriously? I'll play a character that realizes he's taking himself too seriously. Are you happy? Right? <laughs> Get it? <laughs> See what I, I did there? It's great. I think it's so great. Yeah. I could hear Agatha Christie saying the same thing. Oh, you guys aren't going to take me seriously. Fine, whatever. Read closer. And I yeah. think that's that's I, similar to what Brenna's doing. Dude, it, I I mean, yeah. Look at Curtain. I'm not going to say a word about Curtain. I was going to say, yeah. say a word about I'm curtain. not going to say a word about it. But for those who are in on the end of Poirot's story, how can you not take that character as complex? That's a complex just, character. Yes, it is. There is no question about it. Genre aside, that's a real literary figure. I'm sorry. And to, if ahead, you have Megan. not read Curtain yet, you... It, she's dead, ladies and gentlemen. It's a little bit like having War and Peace spoiled for you and being mad. You need to get to it. <laughs> I was just going to say, I actually live daily with some existential dread of having curtain ruined for me. 
It'll take you one night. So it's I'm, on you, man. I should just go do it. I, the next time we tune in, I will have read it. Yeah. That. Having said that, that Poirot is a great complex literary character, it's still a one sitting read. It is a detective <laughs> story after all. One of the great things about Christie. <laughs> yeah. right. Efficiency. It can be existential and efficient. What if what he's going to do is sleeping murder? Oh, my Ooh, sleeping goodness. Murder. Maybe he'll do sleeping murder. That's one of his lesser, one of her lesser. That was known the second stories. one you ever handed me. It's not oh. one of her lesser good stories. You had me start. You had me start with Roger Ackroyd, and yeah, then you too. handed me Sleeping Murder. I did Ten Little Indians, or and then there were none after Roger Ackroyd. Also great. Yeah. Might as well start with the goodies. Oh my goodness! Well, you guys, thank you for your insights as usual. And Sir Kenneth, if you ever hear about this show <laughs> and hear about this episode, just please know tell that we all your absolutely friends. Dig the crap out of what you do. <laughs> You're our hero. Please tune in next Don't time, let the critics get listeners. you down. Please tune in next time for a discussion of another great director from a slightly different angle who has also done some good work in adaptations. Can't wait to see you all then. And until then, happy reading. Happy, happy reading. reading. Thank you for listening to Bibliophiles. If you like what you hear and would be interested in supporting the show, we want to invite you to visit the Bibliophiles shop on the Center for Lit website. We've got bookmarks, coffee mugs, and other gear that will help you help us get as many voices as possible in on the conversation. There's also a chance to get a personal book recommendation from a member of the Center for Lit crew. Next week, we'll be looking at another prolific director of film adaptations, Joe Wright. For those of you who have opinions about Pride and Prejudice, get ready. Until then, happy reading, everyone. <laughs>